to celebrate episode 150, an extra-length interview with Nina Olson. Thank you for tuning in to Tax Justice Warriors. Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, the podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics, focuses on tax controversy work, and looks at related issues in tax news. I'm your host, William Schmidt, the director of the Low-Income Taxpayer Clinic at Kansas Legal Services. I tried to to do a little bit of a survey of your career and and kind of kind of jump through, but I tried to to pick some some of the fun questions too. So starting out, as an undergraduate, you majored in fine arts and Greek. You then worked as a professional painter before turning more to business and accounting, especially tax. How do you think being able to draw on your left brain and right brain functions have helped you in tackling tax projects through the years? You know, that's a great question. And um, I think my becoming a tax lawyer was very serendipitous, but I really think visually. I don't think in words. And so I see things quite literally. Um, I see an idea and then I try to express it. What I also seem to have a skill for is sort of analysis, like getting into the heart of things. And some of that is seeing into the heart of things. And um, that helps me get through the weeds to like, what do we really need to worry about? And the other thing that I am is, you know, a knitter, a sewer, a weaver working with textiles. And so there you have the warp and the weft, which really is just the network. And so again, I can see (laughs) my cat, I can see, you know, interconnections and relationships. So there's really no division in my brain in that way. Um, In fact, the last, the last painting that I did, um, before I moved on to textiles was, was of some rocks in water, huge painting. It's a really big painting. My son has it and lots of paint is layered on it. Um, But the drawings that I did that I found the other day were working out networks of water flow by doing dotted lines, basically vertices and dotted lines to map out stuff the underlying structure, the rocks in the water, what was not seen above the water, but under the water that was making the water flow in a certain way so that I understood that structure and could layer paint on it. And I think just listening to the description of what I did, that's not any different from what I've done with any problem that I faced in tax is to get to the root cause of it, the, you know, how things flow, What's the interruption? What's causing barriers, which would be the rocks? You know, what are people doing reacting to the barriers? And, you know, I don't know how else to explain it, except that I see things and I think things visually, and then I have to translate it into words. I'm much better doing doing really visual manifestations of problems that I see. (laughs) I had to learn to speak. I had 
to learn to talk. It's not a first language for me. Okay. In, in serving your career, there, there are several large accomplishments um, that I noticed, like starting with um, going to law school one night a week um, and yeah, that um, starting the community tax law project and then being at the birth of the formal low-income taxpayer clinic program. What is that that drives you to build such massive endeavors and, and get them accomplished? Why, you know, how, how do you get into such, such massive endeavors? Well, partly because I never thought of them as massive endeavors. I thought of them as problems, solutions, or at least possible solutions to immediate problems that were facing me at a given time. And, you know, the going to law school, you know, at night, and then getting my LLM, driving from North Carolina to Washington, D.C., one night a week for three and a half years, and was insane. But um, the only solution to the problem that I was posed, which was I kept trying to find a place for me in, in doing meaningful work in tax, you know, something that would keep me alive, you know, and I seemed to have a skill for it. And I kept, I just couldn't see myself as a sort of as a CPA. And I thought about that a lot. Um, and finally, I just thought I knew a lot of lawyers and I thought this may very well be my home, but I wasn't really going to, because I was so much older, you know, when I went to law school and I had a son, you know, I was raising a son and I had a practice on the side, you know, a preparation and data prep, you know, does, D-based database design and, you know, et cetera, practice. And it was just like, I, I can't drop everything. I have to stay alive. And so going, you know, I wanted to go to school part-time and going to school at night was the solution. And that it was, you know, it was, it was, took a long time, you know, it took longer than it normally does. So that took stamina but on the other hand, it wouldn't have been possible if I had try, tried to take a year off. And the same thing for the LLM. You know, some people were taking the year off. It's like that was not possible for me. So the only possible path was for me to just plow through and keep going. <laughs> and, you know, the community tax law project was in response. I had been in discussions with Carolyn Parr, Judge Parr at the tax court, because at one point I thought maybe I could do a stint as a clerk and she needed someone and she actually offered me a job. But then I realized, you know, I can't survive in Washington, D.C. on that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd have to sell my, it was just a mess. I don't know why, but it got me a relationship, a friendship with Carolyn. And she, one morning, one afternoon was saying to me, she'd just come off an S calendar and she was just saying, I wish we could do something for low-income people. And it was just very serendipitous that I had just gotten a letter from the North Carolina State Bar saying, you know, pro bono, pro bono, pro bono. And I was thinking, well, I do tax. Where do I volunteer for tax? And that those two sentences came together in my head. And I literally saw the community tax law project. Oh, this is something that meets a need. And, and I saw the name. Um, you know, I could visualize what it was going to look like and the rest was trying to get it to be, but it was like, oh, that's the idea. Like, here's this problem. I'm a tax lawyer and I want to do pro bono. 
where do I do pro bono? How do I do pro bono? Legal aids at that point in 1991 or 1992 weren't doing tax. So what do we do? And that was the birth of the Community Tax Law Project. And then, you know, there was just the need for funding. And I battled that one. I mean, we because the CTLP was just a nonprofit that was in my office that I was subsidizing and I was volunteering all my time and I would talk about it with the Royal we, you know, and pretty soon we had more volunteers and we knew what to do with and everybody loved the idea, but it was getting funding for it. And as I've, you know, I've joked, you know, we were rejected by the best foundations, you know, I'm used to rejection. Um, And we just, we just plowed on, but there was the opportunity to testify before Congress, which of course came through, and it's a famous story, but it's also a true story that we had a case and it was a state tax case and a public defender was assigned. And I was talking to the public defender one day, you know, and he was saying to me, I hate tax. My wife is a tax lawyer. And I thought, aha, here's another tax lawyer volunteer. And I said, you know, oh, what does she do? And he said, well, she's the staff director for the Ways and Means Oversight Subcommittee. And this was the summer of 1997. And I said, oh, do you think she'd like to hear about low-income taxpayers and the problems that they're having before the IRS? And he said, yeah, sure. Here's her direct line. And I just thought, what, should I call her? You know, I mean, I'm sitting in my office in Richmond, Virginia. Who am I? And I just thought, well, this is my, you know, my other mantra is just, you know, the worst she can do is say no. You know, she can not pick up the phone. She can pick up the phone and say, I can't talk now. You know, I can leave a message and she never calls me back. I called, she picked up the phone and an hour and a half later, we were still talking. And the next week I got an invitation to testify before the Ways and Means Committee and the restructuring hearings about the need for low income taxpayer clinic funding. And, you know, Janet Spragans had been doing all this work beside the scene, behind the scenes. And she had, she had all the contacts. I knew no one. And I mean, I literally knew no one. And Janet had, you know, all the contacts, a lot of people had been her students. She testified before the the restructuring commission. And I came up to Washington DC with my, all of my testimony written in a tiny little script on a little like four by six piece of paper. I had no clue how to testify. Um, And then, you know, the Senate called me in to testify during their hearings as well. And the rest is, that is literally how it happened. And um, I can't, I can't explain it. Wow, that, that's that's very serendipitous. That, it is. Yeah. It is like it. If I could have been sitting in Richmond, Virginia, and not made that phone call, and that's what I say to people: you just never know. You, so that's why the worst that can happen is that they will say no to you. That is the worst that can happen to you if you're right. asking for help. I mean, there's just like not in not in this field, at least. There are other fields where there are lots of bad things that can happen to you, but picking up the phone and calling someone to talk is the worst that's going to happen is that you won't get through or they'll just hang up on you and your, your ego will be hurt. But like I say, I've been rejected by lots of things, including the IRS, the IRS personnel, lots of times I'm used to rejection. Right. <laughs> that's, I always say that's just the beginning of the conversation. Well, you know, let's, okay. You, you say, no, let's keep talking. Right. Right. Uh, and, and the other thing is I'm not going away. So. <laughs> right. Your, your persistence. Yes. <laughs> Some people would say stubborn, but, you know, it's like, whatever. So I understand that Keith Fogg was your professor at one point and that you were, that you were carpooling. 
Yeah, and actually, Keith and I go back further than that, because before he became my professor, um, when I first decided to create the Community Tax Law Project, um, I had called around to lots of people because I knew I was moving up to Richmond. So, And I, I had sat for the Virginia State Bar as well. You know, I'd done the North Carolina first year, and then I sat again for the Virginia. So I had the pain of doing two full bar exams. And I heard about Keith from, I had called the dean of the LLM program at Georgetown. And she said, well, you know, who you should really talk to if you're going to be in Virginia is one of our adjuncts, Keith Fogg. And so she gave me Keith Fogg's number. And continuing in my process of calling people out of the blue, I called Keith out of the blue and he literally talked to me for an hour and a half, not knowing who I was at all. And he thought it was a very good idea. And I often talk about the fact that if he had hung up and said, you know, no, we, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. I might've gone away. I might, cause it was so early in the process and no, he really saw the need for it. He did ask me where the money was going to come from. And I said, I, I have no idea. Uh, we'll figure it out. Right. And then he introduced me to the district director and the district director before I'd even moved up, but we had incorporated the district director called together a meeting with everybody in the Washington the DC, I mean, the Virginia, West Virginia district to meet with me. And so we had CI, we had tech, these are all defunct offices now, but the deputy district director, chief counsel, chief appeals, you know, exam, large case collection, special procedures, out stake, you know, outreach and education. Everybody was in this meeting and they all said they would put up posters in the walk-in sites. Um, they agreed to send out letters. Um, that district director later retired immediately. And the next district director said, hell no, we're not going to do that, which is another whole part of the story. But again, that was 1993, their response. And that was just really important to have that response. So then later when I was doing my LLM, I took Keith's bankruptcy course. And by that point I was living in Richmond. So we, I'd go take the train up to get to an earlier class. And then we'd drive back, you know, get home about midnight, <laughs> a little bit after midnight. So we had lots of really good discussions at that point. And he was, wow. you know, we had cases opposite one another and they were always very challenging, but he also, you know, was so supportive and understood the issues. And it is true that the, that district council had pooled their money to have a barbecue. And so they regularly invited me over to eat, which was really sweet of them. <laughs> nice. Jumping in, into your service as national taxpayer advocate, you did quite a bit of work with the Taxpayer Bill of Rights as a tool for taxpayers. What is the most effective way taxpayers can make use of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights? <sighs> You know, I think this is the challenge for the next couple of decades. And um, when when the when we got the IRS to adopt the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in June of 2014, you know, I said I sent a message out to my staff saying, you know, we can do a happy dance for about 30 seconds, and now the real work begins. This is the real work. What does it mean? How do we hold the IRS accountable? to the Taxpayer Bill of Rights? What does it mean for taxpayers? Um, how are the courts going to interact? You know, and so far we have not had 
we've had some, you know, we've had the Moore case and a bunch of analysis. I have not been able to weigh in on that. Um, and I've been trying to think about, you know, looking for a case where I could do an amicus and also writing basically the annotated history of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, because I think that will flesh out some of the the information about it, other than what's been written publicly, even by myself, because, you know, getting the IRS to agree to the Taxpayer Bill of Rights meant one thing, but it's now in the law and it is a responsibility of the commissioner. The commissioner shall ensure that its employees adhere to it, to all of the rights in title, in this title, including the 10 rights, the 10 high-level rights, and that they are trained on them. And I honestly think that taxpayers need to constantly go back to 7803A3 and say to the commissioner, you are not doing your job in my case. Your employees are not trained on it in a particular title. They're not doing the balancing act in collection due process. That's a violation. They're not being trained. They're not adhering to it. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know, ultimately you could get the commissioner removed because the agency itself is not adhering to the taxpayer bill of rights. That to me is the meaning of shall. Now that's a very, you know, like good luck with that, but you know, it gives you a platform to work on. And I, you know, notwithstanding the current tax cases that are out there, I think that on the, in the legal side, that, that, there, there are several approaches I would take to the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. One is in collection due process where you have abuse of discretion, that the taxpayer, the violation of any one of those 10 rights or anything under 7803A3 should be a thumb on the scale on the side of relief for that taxpayer. Um, and we need to argue that in cases. We need to argue and show how the IRS's actions violated, you know, a particular right of the taxpayer. Uh, whether you know, and you also look at the language of Publication One, and I regularly check that language because I'm very afraid that the IRS may, in the middle of the night, change that language and water it down, because that language was very, very seriously negotiated. And there are in those paragraphs, even though they're not the law, they're the agency's position of what that law means. And so you can take that high level statement with the agency's description of it and apply it to your taxpayer situation and argue that the IRS has abused its discretion by not implementing this in the way by violating the taxpayer's right. And and I think also tax, you need to do that in your conversations with employees. The IRS says it's training its employees, but it's, you know, what it, you need to do is say in any given situation, taxpayers have the right to be informed. Well, have you been informed about X, Y, Z? I have just, just talked to somebody this morning who received a math error notice. And he's an individual who files a very complex return because of their employment. And and the math error, we're used to seeing math error notices for child tax credit, EITC denial, whatever. You know, well, this math error notice for like a 32-page return just says you've made a mistake and here's the adjustment. 
Well, where is that mistake? That's a violation of the right to be informed. And the IRS does that every day, millions of times a week with its letters. And that's a violation of the taxpayer's right. And it has a legal consequence because if you can't figure out what it is within a certain amount of time, you know, you're going to lose and you don't respond to the IRS, you're going to lose your right to tax court. And, you know, that that just we need to raise that all the time. We need to use the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in that way, in individual cases, in litigation, in our conversations, not as an automatic, you know, well, this violates my right, but tying it to specific instances. I have the right to this, and you are not doing this here because of this action and this action and this action, and it is preventing me from being able to move forward and, you know, and raise my objections. I have the right to challenge your position. And I am not being able to do that because you are taking the following actions. And that is a violation of my right. It's, it's always good for us as advocates to, to hear that again, because it, it reminds me, we, we do need to tie our cases specifically to the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, get that before the IRS. Make uh, it I, difficult for them to just yeah. sugarcoat it. You know, don't let them get away with it. You, it may not be the winning argument, but it's in there. And particularly in case law, there will be a case where you will get language that talks about the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in a positive way, even if it's dicta, even if it's in a footnote. But make it difficult for the judges not to grapple with it. Put it out there, yeah. you know, and not in a, in a knee-jerk way. You know, that's what is happening in the IRA, you know, it's like, we are respecting this, you know, we're sending out an email saying taxpayers have the right to blah, blah, blah. Great. How many people actually read IRS emails? You know, we need to make it real in people's lives. Yeah. Everything else, it takes persistence or stubbornness. Systemic change is really slow. You know, people think when you look at the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, well, it happened. Well, you know, I was driving everybody crazy about that since 2007. So, you know, or even before. And so, and people were doing that before me. It took a long time and it actually took several events to happen, including the 501c4 event where the IRS was really looking for some good PR in response to that, that, you know, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights looks like a good thing. They can say we care. And it didn't hurt that, you know, the House of Representatives was passing it on a unanimous vote, you know, at the same time. <laughs> what are the current issues that, that you would like to mention at this point about tax reform? Oh, that we're not having it. Um, I mean, really substantive tax reform. I know everybody's focusing on the rates that high income or corporations pay and that I, I have to say, you know, my life has been in tax administration, right? The relationship between the taxpayer on a one-to-one basis with the tax agency or the courts and or groups of taxpayers and the tax agency and courts. How are the agencies treating taxpayers? And my perspective on tax reform, and this is why it was easy for me to be, in that sense, the national taxpayer advocate because I was never really tempted to get into tax policy. That's not what I do. I only got into tax policy when there was an administrative reason for it. The way the law was written was tying pretzels around taxpayers or pretzels around the IRS, right? That they were getting themselves up, you know, all messed up. 
So that's how I look at tax reform. The things that I'm interested in will make it easier for the bulk of taxpayers to file their returns, interact with the IRS, and not have disputes that chew up their lives for the rest of their lives. And that's on the substantive side. So that's really, you know, looking at the de- the family status definitions, which still need a lot more work, you know, that I've made plenty of recommendations about. And then certainly on the taxpayer protection side. Um, and I am very worried. One thing I am very worried about that keeps popping up in the administrative, the administration's budgets. And when this budget comes out this time, I'll be looking very closely to see whether it made it in, is this concept of correctable errors. And I really encourage everyone to look at it and be very concerned. So the IRS, and actually this came from the Finance Committee under Democratic leadership. It was a way, you know, that the IRS constantly wants more math error authority. And what they're doing is they're pushing more audit-like things into the front, to the filing season, and then saying, oh, we don't audit low-income taxpayers. Whereas you add all in these unreal, you know, they're not an audit, they're an unreal audit, but they sure feel like an audit to the taxpayer. So I call them unreal audits. It's very significant. You know, it's, it's got a wide distributional effect, but it adds to disproportionately effect on low income and working poor taxpayers. So this correctable error approach would vastly expand that upfront authority for the IRS to summarily assess. And the way the provision was written back in, I think it started... In, it started in the Obama administration. And it got carried over into the Trump. It just kept put, being put into every single budget. And I'll, like I say, I want to see whether it's in the Biden administration. Is that the IRS, there were three components. I don't know whether I can remember all three, but one was, you know, whether there was a statute where there was either like an age limitation or there was, you can only claim it a number of times or you can claim it only based on an income level or there was a dollar limit. You can only claim $100,000 over a period of years. They wanted you know, summary assessment authority for that. I have no problem with that. I think those are discrete categories that you can actually look at information on the face of the return and say, yeah, we should get, we can summarily adjust that. You know, we have the records that you claimed, you're only allowed to claim it three years and you've come in on four years. No. Um, you can still dispute it, but it's a summary assessment. I understand that. Don't have a problem. Then you get to, you know, forms, something like a form isn't attached to the return or something like that. And I start having problems, partly because the IRS is not a model of clarity, partly because I lived through the first time home buyer credit experience where the IRS decided that in order to claim the first time home buyer credit, you had to have a HUD closing statement. And they didn't do the research to find out that 22 states did not use HUD closing statements. So it was an impossibility for taxpayers in 22 states to attach it. And if they had had math error authority or correctable error authority on that, it would have been been even worse than the first time home buyer credit was in, in terms of things getting screwed up in processing. So no, I don't like that because it gives too much discretion in the IRS's hands and they don't do good enough research. You know, they're always implementing stuff on the fly. And then the third category is what really scares me 
is, you know, where the IRS is relying on certain databases. And that brings in just the whole problem of getting data that was not designed for the purpose of tax administration and applying it in tax administration. There's a concept in data about being fit for purpose. And we see this all the time that people go, oh, data, 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 I can get more and more and more and more and more of it. And it shows indications, but it was never designed to show those indications. You're you're using it in a way and you're making connections that the data wasn't designed to make. And when you tie that, that may be helpful to identify things you might want to look a little closer at. You know, hmm, let's dig in a little deeper. Let's, you know, look at some other data to see whether this really is an issue or if we get another little piece of data, it turns the kaleidoscope a little way and all the pieces of glass make a different pattern. See, I'm back to visual. Um, But it's not good for summarily assessing an adjustment in tax. No, I, but it scores big. And think about the IRS having that ability. They can just pull in anything they want. And, you know, in the center doing the tax tax chats and some of the work that we've been doing, some of the pre-planning calls we've been having for the International Conference on Taxpayer Rights, we've been hearing a lot about different cases. We just heard one in about Australia, and it happened several years ago, where the ATO used some health and human services data to, no, health and human services got eight Australia tax data on income and things like that. And the health and human services people denied all sorts of benefits, you know, to low income persons. It caused so much of a, you know, a, an uproar and the agency, the, the state had, or in the agency, the health and human service agency had to pay billions of Australian dollars in damages to these, these individuals. So, and that just goes to fit for purpose. What some data that is designed for one thing If you don't understand how it's designed and what it's representing and you just put it into your own system and you you conclude things that you can't really conclude, you're going to have real problems. And often it's, you know, handling the lowest, the most vulnerable taxpayers and they can't object. So I do not want to give the IRS that authority. They are going to have to go through deficiency procedures and explain themselves not summarily assess. And I really encourage everyone that is like on my radar because right now everybody wants money to do great things for this country. And I just don't want them to get it off the backs of taxpayers who will be chewed up by the administration of the IRS just because of the way the system is designed. Toward the end of your tenure, you're able to assemble the taxpayer roadmap I've used it twice as an adjunct professor to have students give presentations on the different IRS departments and and discuss the the effects on taxpayers. Um, what what were some of your thoughts on on intentions for the the taxpayer roadmap? So first of all, the roadmap again we go back to visuals. You know, we were really trying to I was trying to find a way to explain how Byzantine and labyrinthine the IRS dispute filing dispute and dispute resolution process was for taxpayers from the taxpayer perspective. And the um, director of communications, Mary Claire in my office 
who's just such a creative person said at one point, what we really need is like a roadmap. And we sat down with Laura Beck and Karen Tober and locked ourselves into Mary Claire's office suite, got a bunch of colored construction paper and cut out little squares. You know, I think appeals was orange collection was red. I think, you know, this is just how we are working on it. And we took a, this was for our work. We I think we changed the colors a little later, but you might see, but we just mapped it out along her whiteboards and on her walls. And it just covered the whole like office module. And by doing it with tape, you know, we could, if we realized that there was something that we'd forgotten, we could just move the little squares along, you know, each square had a different stage. And, and the funny part about it was we had she, the person on her staff, who is our, one of our graphics people and kept saying, do we want a roadmap? We want a roadmap. And she drew out like a little pastoral scene with ducks and there were goats involved and things like that. And then a little road along the way. And we kept saying, no, no, like, you know, the map that you fold up and everything like that. Well, she was much younger than we were and she, they had GPS. They'd never used a road map, So she had no idea what we were talking about. So that was like, okay, I'm really old. I'm sorry. That was like, oh my God. But then we started going, it needs to be a Metro map. It was like the Metro map is really the model. They understand the Metro map. And, and we really wanted it to be your, like your Bedecker to getting, you know, finding your way around at a very high visual level. Um, and if anything, you could see, this is where I am. This is where I need to be. You know, there's a goal there. I can find my way there. Um, it had come from my original, I had developed some teaching uh, for for my some my students when I was teaching, you know, as an adjunct, and then had done a a three hour video for my employees on roadmap to a tax controversy that I think the LITC still have that video, and so that you know we'd always had this concept of a roadmap, but I really wanted to take into detail. The other thing that happened with that was that we had decided years before we did the roadmap, we had gone out to a place in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, I think it was, I can't remember, Minneapolis or St. Paul, called the Nerdery. And we'd, Mary Claire and Karen and a few other people on my communication staff had locked ourselves in a room, we keep locking ourselves in rooms, with these people who were going to help us think about how we could do an app. We wanted to have be like a place where people could come if they got a letter from the IRS or they were in attack. What do I do next? What does this letter mean? And again, we covered the wall with sticky notes and came back and we never really could think about the app. But when we started thinking about the roadmap and as it, it evolved, the next stage was to make a digital roadmap. So people could then go online, put in their notice number, and they would get a pop-up that would say, here's what this notice is. Here's what it means. You know, here's what it's telling you. Here's what you should do. Here's where you can go to get help. And then at any point, you could link further deeply into the irs.gov web or the TAS website to get more information or even go to the tax court website, you know, to get more information. But you could also find your place on the map 
too. You could go, where am I on the map? And it would get you the map and there'd be a little blinking light. And actually, although nobody has written about it or knows about it, before I left, we had developed teams to look at every single stage of that map and identify notices and then write those five or six high-level, almost executive summary about the notice and then link it to other things and really find what was on the iris.gov website that you could link to. to as, as deep as people wanted to go, we could give them a roadmap into the iris.gov from the point of view of this, like the entry was the notice that you got. And, and it is up. I don't know why people aren't, if you can put in roadmap and on the TAS website, you will find this. They have a few notices that you can actually see see the description and get more information. So they're continuing to work on it. I don't know whether they're still going to be building it up or not, but that was the vision to make it something that was interactive, that would give the taxpayer the power to, to not only know where they are, but what are their rights? That was one of the questions. What are my rights, you know, with respect to this notice and, and then claim those rights. And if they needed help, then here's where I can get help. Here's TAS, here's the LITCs, here's the link to them, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah. I love it. It's a great, it's a great piece. It's it's a huge accomplishment. It took hours and hours of thinking and visuals. And then we sent it over to the IRS functions to review the accuracy. We sent it over to council to review the accuracy. We uncovered so much stuff we didn't know. And we did have to make hard calls about, oh God, we can't go, we can't go down that 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 road you know this road we have to keep at a high level because this is like this is like a little block out and the idea always was okay we've got to sort of maybe on the back of the map you know have those sections where all right here's the detail you know here's the inner city map you know which they ultimately did it's really and they have a glossary i mean it's really an impressive document for sure and i i agree with the the metro interaction because I mean, each one isn't its own separate track because they they interweave and and mingle and it's definitely needed that way. Yeah. And I don't know any other. I mean, we showed it at we showed a prototype at the International Conference in Minnesota when we held it in 2019. And the room just went, oh, can we have one? You know, and it was just no, we did this. This is ours. You know, I mean, you can reproduce it, but. You know, it's a lot of work. It's a yeah. lot of work, yeah. but it was really fun. And if we hadn't had that, if we hadn't had that construction paper, I don't think we could have done. Because we started out on a whiteboard, you know, like drawing, and then you'd have to erase something, and then you'd run out, you know, on the whiteboard because it kept going down and down, and we'd go over and over, and you'd already written stuff over here, and that's where we thought tape and construction paper. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was a great learning tool because. I have these these small tax procedure classes that they've been four to six students. And last year I was looking at it with six students and there were six tracks on the roadmap. <laughs> I was like, okay, um, all of you are doing a presentation on on that particular part of the roadmap. And I think it's great to to look at it and and drill down because I think in talking to to other advocates, some of them are like, I don't know what to do with this and, and set it aside. And to me, it's right. like, okay, let's, let's right. learn. Let's, let's right. figure out what, what are the right. interactions right. and then we can, we can expand on that. Okay. How can I help my client? How can, how can I 
advocate for systemic advocacy in in this area of the roadmap. That, that well, and, and you know, so much of the area, you know, where we really had to do so many corrections was in that return processing section. There are so many layers of getting that return stopped. And then what are your procedural rights, you know, in that area? And that goes back to our conversation about, you know, correctable errors, all of this stuff that traditionally would be an audit, right, is being moved to that return processing section. And that's a black hole, you know, and that's really an area for advocacy and really an area for due process advocacy. You did not give me adequate notice. I have no hearing on this, you know, and it's going to be really interesting with the advanced child tax credit and everything that we've all been talking about, you know, on our calls that, that are you going to, if you're denied on July 1st, the, the advanced child tax credit, do you have a right to a hearing, you know, about that? What is it? And that's going to be an area of great activity going forward. And it's all, you know, and then if they, they deny it in the summer and then you claim it on your 2021 return, but somebody else has gotten it, you get caught in a black hole. Are you going to have to wait until 2023 to get that resolved just to get your return processed? It's yeah, that I, area. It's that area. I mean, I think that the map is maybe a little outdated in the sense that there are just so many layers in there. Yeah, and then so so pivoting from the child tax credit, one thing that we have discussed in those those conference calls is the IRS dichotomy between law enforcement. And then being um, a tax administration and tax, well, a a benefits distributor, and and there are the issues with customer service. How I mean, you, you've kind of touched on this, but but what what are some some basic suggestions you have in in the IRS encompassing these different areas of of their functions? You know, I, you know, first of all, the thing about the calls is the center hosts a weekly call that came up through the, um, through the litigation on the CARES Act. And we've continued, you know, we've sort of continued it just looking at all sorts of the things that are happening. Um, And it's been, I think, I hope it's been really helpful for the clinics who are participating. And if any of the folks on listening to this are interested in joining, they should just email me and you can let them know my email address. I mean, it's out there. Um, you know, I've recommended for years, the, the first thing is the IRS, whether it says it or not, its culture is that of a tax enforcement agency. And if you listen to the commissioner's hearings, you heard all about tax enforcement, audit, 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 more money, audit, 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 trillion dollar tax gap, audit, audit, audit. You know, we've got to go after these people. There was not a mention in the Senate Finance Committee about the 2% level of service on the phones, which means there is no taxpayer service. And end of conversation. You have no taxpayer service if you have a 2% level of service on the phones. And even the IRS calculates it at 5%. I mean, shocking, shameful. No, that's not okay. And you can't blame it all on the pandemic. It's been going on for years. The under underwriting, the underestimating, the erosion of pure taxpayer service. So you put that together with an enforcement mentality and an enforcement culture, 
And then you put in things that are supposed to benefit taxpayers who need assistance, have challenges both with liter, you know, verbal literacy, functional literacy, um, you know, digital literacy. They need help and assistance. And there's none available for them. Putting out posters about the child tax credit or the EIP in multiple languages is terrific. But if there's nobody there to give them the help that they need in the moment that they need, they can't get through in the phone to get a translator. It doesn't matter that you've got translators standing by. They can't get through. 98% of the calls don't get through to a live assister. End of conversation. So they have to do a major shift. They have to do, and it's a cultural shift first. And then from that cultural shift flows a number of things. And this is where being in the agency has been enormously helpful to me. Because if you had tried to talk to me 20 years ago about these things, my eyes would have glazed over and I'd be like, I don't want to talk about that. You know, that's for some little pointy headed bureaucrat, you know, and no, I don't want to talk about that. But having administered a bureau, you know, a program inside a very large bureaucracy for 18 years, I really understand how this stuff drives behavior. You, and this is why I say you have to reform the IRS mission statement. You have to start with that. That's the top. You say, what's the agency's job? The job is to administer the laws, not just enforce. Enforcement is a component of administration. In 2010, in the dead of night, the commissioner and the IRS changed the mission statement that was created after RA 98 to go from, you know, the mission is to administer the laws to enforce the laws that was done without any consultation of anybody. I didn't even know about it. They didn't talk to me. And I'm the boy. I was the voice of the taxpayer inside the IRS, you know, and that just shows you these, the, the culture of the agency. So you have to go back to, we are administering the tax laws. As part of that, we are enforcing the tax laws against those that need actual enforcement. We are providing service to people in order to comply voluntarily, and we are collecting the revenue. At the same time, part of administering the laws means we are dispersing benefits out to people, a lot of benefits. And so we need to have revenue collection and administration, I mean, benefits administration in that mission statement as lines of business, all of which have to be done in conformity with taxpayer rights and minimal burden to taxpayers. That's the mission statement. And from that mission statement, then you have the structure of the IRS. You know, what do you have under revenue collection? What do you have under benefits administration? What are the goals of each of these divisions and the overlay is taxpayer rights and minimal burden. How are you going to collect revenue protecting taxpayer rights and minimal burden? How are you going to administer disperse benefits, protecting taxpayer rights, giving them due process and making it easy, minimal burden for the taxpayer. And by the way, if you get minimal burden for the taxpayer, you also end up having minimal burden for the agency, you know, because then they don't get all those disputes that they're still mired in 30 million pieces of paper that they are not processing. So, you know, you, it works that way. And then you go from there, you say, what are your performance measures? What are the skills of the employees that we need in this component of the work? We need people that know how to talk to people who have challenges 
literacy challenges. We need people with social work skills. Over here, we maybe need, in both places, we need people with data, you know, data engine, data scientists. We need them because we need to think also about this minimal burden, about how we can use data to reduce the burden on taxpayers and enable them to comply. Can we make automatic payments of things? And if we think we don't have, you know, if we are really approaching it from that mission and we're evaluating our employees' performance based on performance measures that go to that mission, you, you know, you get what you measure, you drive behavior in that way. And I, until it does that, it ain't, it ain't going to deliver, it's not going to be a 21st century, much less a 22nd century tax administration. And I don't care how many audits you do of high income taxpayers, you're not going to be a tax administration for the whole of the United States if you don't deliver that. And that is really hard work, but it has to be done. And, you know, the IRS's Taxpayer First Act plan doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. It doesn't identify its mission and design itself around its dual mission. And in fact, that's a project that I'm working on right now because I've given up. You know, I'm not going to ask the IRS about this. I'm just going to tell them. I'm just going to design. I'm not telling them because who's going to listen to me? But I'm going to design for my own benefit with little pieces of construction paper. You know, what the agency should look like if it was really doing, if it really embraced its dual mission. And then with that, I'll start thinking about what would be the goals? What would be the, what would be your strategic plan? What would be your performance measures? What would be your, your hiring? You know, what skills would you need? And some of that involves, this is a project that the center is working on over the next six, the next year, really. But but really to come across, come with some, we're calling it reimagine, reimagining tax administration. And, and that's what we're going to do. Very nice. That's, that's more of that creativity <laughs> that, that you're, you're putting at play. So in, in bringing up the Center for Taxpayer Rights, people know you more as the national taxpayer advocate. So, so let's, Let's give that pitch. What what is the Center for Taxpayer Rights? What what is your focus? What what do you do? Well, you know, first of all, I, you know, people always say, you know, former national taxpayer advocate. And I say, well, I'm currently the executive director of the Center for Taxpayer Rights. You know, I didn't, I didn't, reti- I didn't retire. I retired from the IRS. There's a distinction, and it wasn't like I was. I made the decision that at this point in my career, I would be more creative and more flexible working outside the agency. And that form of creativity was, you know, for years I had been thinking about creating some kind of center. And I actually have a legal opinion from the office of chief counsel about seven years before I retired, six or seven years before I retired um, from the IRS talking about what I could legally do in setting up the program before I retired? You know, what were my legal ability to do? Could I incorporate it? Could I recruit a board of directors? It's a really interesting roadmap. Um, And I had that, you know, in my back pocket, because I wanted to, the minute that I left the IRS, I wanted to start working in the center. And so that's what we did. And um, I have a great board of directors. um, And it was really designed for the things that I thought needed continued advocacy. You know, we had worked so much, 
starting the International Conference on Taxpayer Rights and the Taxpayer Advocate Service didn't want to continue it after I'd left. So I had a legal opinion about, yes, you can do that, Nina. And so we took on, and that's what I really thought would be our first focus because it was something that was real. And we were, you know, um, and so we were planning the one for 2020 in South Africa, which I was very excited about. Um, and then, and then, you know, things I sort of wrote the nonprofit application um, identifying five or six big categories, international taxpayer rights, um, international conference, starting the low income taxpayer clinic support center. This was an idea that I was, I had left behind when I left the community tax law project. One of the projects I wanted to do if I had stayed was to create a national center, like the national consumer law center, you know, the national women's law center for the clinics and for the, LITC tax, LITPs, you know, those kind of issues. And then I, you know, went away. And Keith periodically would remind me of that. And so I thought, well, okay, we'll do that in the center. That seems like a good and helpful thing. And I also wanted to support ombudsman and taxpayer advocate offices around the world because I'd been meeting with them and there needed to be some place where we could maybe encourage that kind of activity. And then we thought we'd do systemic advocacy, like file amicus briefs and things, because that was something I was never able to do as a national taxpayer advocate and always took me off. Um, and then um, the idea was to maybe do a taxpayer education campaign. Um, I wanted, you know, I wanted to really create some materials for curriculas and do graphic novels and animation things and fit them into different, you know, work with art schools. See, there's that art again. And um, and then finally, maybe create a training program for the IRS where we could bring scholars and practitioners and tax people from all over the world, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, whatever, um, to really expand the way the IRS thinks about tax administration. And I put all that in the nonprofit application and and my board looked at it and Keith actually said to me, you know, this is like five nonprofits. And um, Liz Atkinson was like, no, she's going to do it. Don't worry about it. So, you know, that's that's really it was just like, sit down, paint out your vision, your vision that might take 20 years to get to it. You might not be the one doing it, but paint out the vision and then just take what's doable. And what was doable was the conference. What was doable were a couple of things. And then, you know, the pandemic hit and that opened up really being able to work with the LITCs and establish the call and, you know, coordinate litigation and file amicus briefs and things like that. Um, and so now we're, we're working on a bunch of these things. So it's really, it's really, it's really neat. And we're looking, you know, we have been able to get, raise the funding for um, developing the pro bono referral network. I think we're either going to call it LITC Connect or LITC Network. It's really up to, I'm not sure. We're going to have to make a decision soon. Um, as with all programming, it costs more than you expected, but fortunately we have the, we've raised the money to do that. And there I've got the scope of work and it's going to be a really impressive application where um, I keep explaining it as a dating app so that LITCs can create a profile describing the work that they do and volunteers attorneys, CPAs, enrolled agents can come in and create their own profile and say what volunteer work they'd be willing to do, what categories of work, what types of cases. 
And that way, when LITCs have a need that they can't meet from their own local pool of pro bono attorneys, they can put in an assistance request and the machine will go do 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 and match it with um, a number of people. And then what we need to raise funds for is to be able to hire a pro bono coordinator so that that person can reach out to the attorneys and and communicate with them and say, we have a request, you've come up, are you interested in this? You know, can you do it? You know, and really work through it because we want hands-on. We don't want it to just be, you know, you get an email. We That part of that is for quality control. But the idea is to expand the scope of volunteers for, pro, you know, a LITCs. And some of that came from just, there's so many LITCs that aren't able to have a good, you know, because where they're located, they're small, they're rural, whatever, you know, they just don't have a lot of tax lawyers and they wouldn't, they're perfect where they need to be. We need them in the community, but they're not getting the full hundred thousand dollar grant because they can't raise the funds and they can't get the match because of, they don't have volunteers. So at least these volunteer hours could help them get even more hard cash from the IRS into the program where they could maybe hire, you know, go from a part-time attorney to a three-quarter time attorney on staff. So that's sort of the idea. And it's chugging along. I think it's, you know, the idea was it would be delivered, the product would be delivered and be in testing in July. So we're going to undergo a large campaign, try to get firms to sign on as sponsors so that we can raise the funds for a part-time pro bono coordinator. Awesome. I hope so. We'll see. (laughs) So you are known for federal United States taxes what what is your fascination with the international conferences and i mean just just part of it like what what have you brought from the international taxes that that can help in the united states well you know as the national taxpayer advocate i was really privileged reaching out to different countries and actually doing what i would call little mini seminars um it was easier when I had more control of my budget or, you know, the IRS wasn't so concerned about optics, people traveling, but I was able, for example, to reach out to United Kingdom, HMRC and say, I hear you're doing X. Like, you, you know, in 2004, they brought in a family tax credit and a worker's credit out of the, the health and human services system and into the tax system. And so I said, I'd really like to come over and spend a week talking to you about how you're doing it, what data you've got, and things like that. And they opened their doors to me, and I brought one of my attorney advisors along with me. And um, it was fascinating. And it was incredible to see how they were doing things and how they were looking at things, what information they had, but also comparing their culture to ours. And I don't just mean IRS culture, I mean taxpayer culture and what they accepted in terms of privacy or sharing of information, what they didn't, how they approached different things. And we also, and I can't remember that was the trip to UK, but they were also undergoing, it might've been a second trip where they were undergoing a large reorganization at that time. And there was a room on the top floor of the office, which was near Whitehall and everything, Westminster and everything. And that was where they had maps all over the place about how the organization was going to be redesigned. And it was fascinating to watch them go through the reorg as we had just done a reorg. And um, so I think I had about three or four trips 
meeting and one trip was just totally looking at their digital online account and meeting with their research staff and their behavioral insights team folks and things like that. And so over the years, I'd learn things and I'd come back to the ice and I'd say, you know, this is a really good idea. You should really do something like this. And nobody would pick it up, but I'd write about it and say something about it. Then we would, we went to, um, we started going to Australia because I'd met someone from us from, from, University of New South Wales, and they had this ATAX conference, which in my mind is the best tax administration conference in the world. And it happens every two years. It was postponed last year. It's coming up this year in November, we hope. But, you know, I went over there and I met with Australia tax office officials and their research staff. And I was able to bring for the conference and I was able to bring some attorney advisors with me in the beginning. So it's like bring my research person with me, my research director with me. So we could really talk about what they were doing with selecting cases, how they were doing risk scoring. It was not just going to low income taxpayers. It was really looking at how tax administration and the culture of tax administration is in these other countries and what their perception is of rights. And so between talking to them, but then going to a conference and talking to practitioners and academics, you sort of got a 360 picture. We also went to Sweden. I went to Sweden a couple of times and spent literally spent a week. We spent a week meeting every aspect, people from every aspect of Swedish tax administration. And then the second time I just spent days meeting with Sweden had a at that time, a chief strategist, which I just thought, what a fabulous position. I mean, if I weren't the taxpayer advocate, I'd want to be this chief strategist. And it was just eye-opening. It's a very, again, it's a very different culture. And since that time, you know, we were able to go to Chile. We were able to go to um, certainly South Africa. You know, that was afterwards. But no, I went to South Africa as the national taxpayer advocate. Greece, you know, meeting with people on all sorts of issues And um, I would really learn things. And in Europe, you know, you have, I I did work, I I went over for sessions in Italy. These were toward, you know, some, only a few of them were paid for by the IRS. I would take tax vacations. I take my vacation and go meet with tax people, you know, pay for it myself. And um, it just really opened my eyes to how tax, the IRS was so very far behind many of these tax agencies in terms of digital, in terms of culture, in terms of thinking about research. Um, And then there were real flaws in the other agencies too, or there were things that they were doing that you just look and you'd go, that would never wash in the United States with the culture that we have. Forget about the IRS that our taxpayers would never stand for this level of, you know, how much the government knew about you. We would never stand for that. And so it wouldn't work all these nifty things that might work in Nordic countries. Um, And then as I got further into it and started doing the international conference on taxpayer rights, you know, I was really interested in the European convention on human rights and where taxation filled in with this and how the United States has a constitution and a bill of rights the European Convention is really, although they're derivative, they're also very different. You know, like the European Convention on Human Rights recognizes the right to a private life. You know, we have spent two centuries trying to find the right to privacy in our constitution. We keep finding it in like a little clause here and a little, you know, like in the commerce clause or something. And you're like, no, the European Convention on Human Rights says you have a right to private life. Now, what that means is is got to be worked out, but it's there. And so all of that has been really interesting to me. 
um, and has led to, you know, we're not just talking about taxpayer rights on the domestic scale. We're talking about it on an international scale. What can we learn from others? What they can, can they learn from us? Because there are certainly protections that we have administratively that other countries look at and go, oh, I wish we had that, you know, and then where do we want to go together? Because this is a global economy. Um, So that's sort of my interest. It was always trying to learn something to bring it back to the IRS. But, you know, it really was sort of a curiosity thing. And it's sort of, you know, done its way into the tax chats because I keep trying to bring international people into the tax chat so that we can learn what's going on in the world in a conversation. And those converse, those tax chats are very much like what my conversations would be when I went over with tax officials. We'd just sit and talk. They'd always have a PowerPoint. They'd want to do a presentation, but I'm really good about exploding PowerPoints. You know, like, I don't want to look at page three. Let's talk about this. You know, what do you think about this? And before you know it, you're having just, you're learning so much. It's great. It was great. It was a real privilege. It was just, it was just a real privilege. And I want to carry, I want to, you know, I want to leverage what I've been given the privilege of sharing and make it for everybody, you know, to the extent that I can through the center and the tax chats and the conference. Oh, that's, that's very good. Yeah. I mean, I haven't signed up for the conference. You should do so. It's a great conference this year. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have a lot of discussions about the use of data and how audits are designed and, and the limits of data, you know, and we're going to be talking about, you know, rights with respect to data. It's going to be a really great conference. Yeah, I, I agree. Everyone should should sign up. I could do more, but my last serious question is: what what does a a mission accomplished look like for for taxes? In I mean, is is there a certain goal that that we should be focusing on or what what could we collaborate and i mean we we've probably discussed it but i i thought i would throw it out there that um because things keep driving you for for tax reform you know what 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 is a a kind of a a peaceful survey of the land see i don't think about things that way people when i was the national taxpayer advocate always used to ask me what are your five major accomplishments or you know when do you you know what are what were your greatest successes and it's like I, I have no idea. I mean, you know, you could say LI, you know, the Tibor LITC fund, you know, funding CTLP, you know, it's, that's not how I think about things. It's like here again, here's the issue in front of me. I'm going to focus everything I've got at this moment on that issue. Oh, the next issue is now, now that I've done that, there's another issue. The minute that the T-Bore gets passed, we've got to start talking about what does the T-Bore mean? The minute the IRS revises its mission statement, we've got to start focusing on, well, what does that mean? And how do we make that actually effective? You know, so even if I could say, oh, yay, the mission statement's changed, you know, you've got to start thinking about, well, how is the agency organized? What are the performance measures? How is it hiring people? How is it getting out to the pool that we need to get bring in? And how, you know, so you can't just, you, you can have that moment of the happy dance and then you've just got to go, go on to the next thing. I don't find that depressing. I, that's life. And I'll keep doing it until I can't 
do it any longer or until I feel like I'm ineffective. And that could happen. I just feel like, you know, I'm saying the same old thing and nobody's listening to me. And so I should just go out with my goats and that I don't have yet and be happy. Um, But I'm not there, you know, and, and so I find that, you know, I find, I find the process so interesting and I like human beings and find them so curious that part of that process, part of, you know, how human beings operate in the process is so fascinating that I, I don't find the fact that, you know, you get so few moments where you can say, well, that's done, you know, in your life. Cause that's not life. I mean, it's just <laughs> not life. True. So that's sort of where I am. You know, I say, this is good. We did that. Okay, good. Now what? Yeah. And you know, anybody who ever worked for me knows that they just are like, we don't get to rest. They, she always comes up with these things, but it's just how I am. And I happen to have the privilege of being over a bunch of people that I could say, Oh, let's do this. <laughs> and now I'm just sitting here saying it to myself and my board, you know, and you know, maybe anybody else who's volunteering with us, Oh, let's do this. And then I look around and it's like, Oh, I'm the, I, I have to do this, but that's okay. Okay. <laughs> Well, okay. So I, I was going to pivot now to, um, I mean, I could keep asking you questions, but I was going to pivot to some, some fun questions. So, so you brought up not having the goats yet. Yeah. yeah, So so you, you do, you do. Where are the goats? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You, you do mention some, um, having a goat farm someday. So, so what is, what is kind of, what, what is so fun about that goal and and what, (laughs) what, what kind of brings you happy, happy thoughts about, about thinking about a goat farm and yeah, it's not just, I mean, I don't want a goat farm. I want to, I want some land and I want a few goats on the land um, because really what I've been, what I've been trying to, you know, I, I love working with fiber and I mean, I've studied textiles, you know, I've, I've woven, I've got a floor loom. I, you know, do a lot of knitting. I do couture sewing, you know, I'm really serious about pattern, pattern making and, and anything that has to do with textiles and costume and clothing. And, and I'm not really a sheep person in the sense of their personalities, but goats have these really funny, odd little personalities. And, you know, I want goats, either Angora or goats that produce cashmere fiber. And, and I, you know, I've been looking over the last year and a half at different pieces of land and going, oh, that maybe, maybe, and nothing's really taken me. But, you know, at some point I would like to have some land and a little bit of land. I don't need a lot and goats don't need a lot and have, you know, maybe three goats that I can have and have the fiber from. And I would be able to create a little dyeing studio around my, I have a townhouse in DC and I have planted dye plants everywhere I can find in pots, in the little posted stamp garden, secret garden that I have. Um, And you know, I, so I can do some dyeing here, but it would be fun to have, you know, a dye garden, a real dye garden and do some stuff just for my own pleasure. But I, it is what my pleasure is. You know, I love, I love spinning. Um, I just, I really love that kind of fiber. It's a good, it also takes you out of your brain. You know, it's like one of those things where if you spin or you sew or you do something it stops that noise in your brain. And often when you're doing something with your hands and it could be cooking, it could be something, 
by distracting your attention and your brain, your brain is not stopping. It's continuing to think about whatever that issue is. And all of a sudden you'll find that you're doing something and then the idea pops in your head because it's been busy. You've just stopped messing with it. You've let it do the job that it needed to do. And we were getting in the way, you know, my consciousness was getting in the way. And so by distracting my consciousness with a really satisfying task, I often come up with ideas that were burbling around and needed to be allowed to surface. So, you know, it's, it's very, it's just, it's just a goal. It may be that I will never get, I keep saying to people who are getting land, like Keith has been renovating a farmhouse that, you know, that he's going to be moving into. And I'm like, you better watch it because in the middle of the night, there are going to be three goats that land on your property. I mean, I'm just telling you I'll pay for them, but they're going to show up Keith. So we'll see. He doesn't believe me. (laughs) Well, in, in Wisconsin, there was a restaurant that I visited that they, I don't know what they did during the pandemic, but every day they would drive up and open the door and let the goats out and they would climb up onto the roof. And so you can look and, and see the goats during the yep. day that, that they, they would have all this hay or, or whatever out yep. for them yep. that, that they could, they could eat during the day and, and they could do whatever, but they would be up on the roof all day. Yep. They love to the climb. I mean, they're goats and trees. They climb everywhere. They eat everything. They are silly. They are human. I have a friend who has a bunch of goats and three of them she named after the three stooges. And it's just, it's just, you know, there's Mo, there's Larry, there's Curly. I haven't seen Shemp. She didn't name Shemp, which was, you know, but it was just, it was really, they're really funny, odd beings. Some people hate them, but I really, I just think, you know, they're not sheep. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have they have their own personality. Yep, yep. Yeah. So, do you still collect dinosaurs? Yes, I have. I yeah. left my dinos most of my dinosaurs to the IRS, but I brought home my favorite, and um, I still give dinosaurs regularly. And there are dinosaurs all over my house. I mean, there are dinosaurs. I'm looking at a dinosaur right now in my kitchen. They're just all over, and um, I like dinosaurs a lot. Dinosaurs are good. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to the whole, the national, you know, the, what is it? The national, the museum, the national museum where they have the dinosaur hall. I wasn't able to go there before the pandemic shut it down. And so I'm looking forward to just having my Gaga moment with the dinosaurs. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I have. So thank you, Nina. This, this has been a pleasure, a, a wonderful conversation, and, and thank you for your time. So This was yeah. great. Thank you for doing this. And your, your podcasts are wonderful. So this is really great. It's really good. Thank you for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast. Providing monetary support for this podcast helps with expenses like equipment or travel to tax conferences. Supporting this podcast through Patreon comes with rewards, so check out our Patreon page. Please rate or review this podcast because positive reviews help get more people to know this podcast exists. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers of the people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as tax or legal advice. Consult with your own tax professional to provide you with specific advice on your situation. Tune in next time on Tax Justice Warriors for another interesting tax discussion.